Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just on four o'clock and I am here this week. It's Jan Bartlett and I'll be here until six o'clock tonight. Today, the history of Ireland post-19th century with historian and author Brian McKinlay. A visit of the UN Security Council's General Secretary Ban Ki-moon to the Western Sahara refugee camps in Algeria. We'll be finding out what happened then with Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. Continuing a history of people around 3CR today it's Bruce Francis who was the manager of the station from the mid-1980s to the mid-1990s and the life of murdered Honduras environmentalist Berta Kakeras by her friend Beverly Bell from Other Worlds. But first, Mr Kevin Healy and he's had another one. A week, Jane Lister, when... Well, we'll recall last week we congratulated that great U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world citizen, Lord Rupert of Wapping, for his dispassionate objectivity and balance, explaining unemotionally the two bills being utilised to generate a double dissolution. One would make it difficult for criminal union bosses to keep their jobs. The other set up to keep lawless construction union and officials in line. Direct quote, what objectivity bosses used by the media and caring business class spokespeople and not by unions themselves to describe their officials a nasty evil pejorative when applied to trade unions, a positive high praise when applied to a caring business class good boss which is why we saw all those bosses' crosses on Mount Prophets Friday. Malcolm, the Minister for Coshing the Workers, Michaela Kosh the Workers, and the top tough cop on the beat, Nigel Hedge, kissed the bosses, with the Mount Prophets caring business class locals standing above them next to a portable automatic hand dryer, standing above their marionettes, pontificating that the only way to prevent the Mount Prophets locals being crucified was to crucify those evil forces who were crucifying them. We gave you a fair trial with that unbiased, neutral, highly esteemed, highly respected jurist, his honour Mr Justice die son hell on the workers, who proved beyond all reasonable doubt you must be crucified in the interests of all of us. They sentenced the evil unions and lazy avaricious workers after a fair trial, of course. Well said, Malcolm, well said, the puppeteers representing the all of us us, uh, interests fingered the strings. Uh, But a common construction worker rudely intervened. That biased Kanga Mission caring business class party up himself puppet wouldn't even let us cross-examine or test the allegations or raise the deaths and injuries so prevalent in construction. How dare you criticise so great a man? His honour simply knew you would use the right to test evidence to prolong proceedings and delay your inevitable crucifixion when the damning evidence came from irrefutable sources such as these puppeteers pulling our strings. 
And we note that after careful balanced consideration, His Honour ruled himself that he himself was not biased. At which point, Makeda approached an evil worker, held her breath to avoid contagion, and cautiously reached into and felt about in the toolkit. Uh, good news, Malcolm, uh, there's lots of nails in here, they'll do. And thus Malcolm and Michaela and Nigel and the caring business class atop the strings who know what's good for us saved all of us from the evil of evil unions, placing the letters A, B, double C across the top of the crosses, which archaeologists in a time to come will determine stands for True Blue Aussie Building Workers Crucifixion Commission. Lucky they didn't crucify a thief each side of the evil workers, or the bosses themselves would have been strung up. No relation to Thebes, but still on Lord Rupert, who brings us genuine news, real debate Lord Rupert style, through his myriad of outlets, including Skyline News. As this week it was announced, his favourite lackey, uh, sorry, uh, usual suspect balanced columnist Andrew Bolt through the head, would have a program on Lord Rupert's pay me to watch my crap channel, which Andrew said was the only medium offering genuine news and real debate, and therefore he was proud to be part of it. He said that in Lord Rupert's very own whopping sin. No house advertising posing as news here. And same week it was announced another new news presenter on Sky Lie, former Big Supremo, tiny a bit more for the boss's chief of staff, Peter Credible in, as opposed to incredible. So obviously we can expect genuine news and real debate from Andrew and Peter, Lord Rupert style. Well, Lord Rupert would never let them loose in front of a camera if he doubted their balance and objectivity. Let's qualify that we can expect, as I assume listeners to this station would never pay to watch the same crap we can watch on free-to-air without having to hand our hard-earned to Lord Rupert. The caring business class party is obviously careering to the left, forcing that epitome of balance and reason, Corey St. Barnyard, to contemplate forming a party or political entity to the right of the caring business class party. Couldn't he just join the Socialist Party? But on Corey St. Barnyard and on that same-sex taboo, congratulations to those democracy-loving, side-splitting humour, backbench pollies, Corey, George, I'm a Christian son, the aforementioned tiny, Erica Betts on the bosses, Ed Al, who recognised that brainwashing dear little children created in the image of the dear baby Jesus, that all dear little children may not be straight heterosexual, that there just may be scope for people being individual people for which they should not be bullied, is out of control socialist propaganda. It is important, Eric spoke for these broad-minded comedy superstars, that normal, natural, dear little children created in the image of the dear baby Jesus be allowed, indeed, it is their God-given duty to bully these unnatural tendencies out of these evil influences. And thank goodness... George, Corey, Tiny, Eric et al. have managed to bully Malcolm into again showing his leadership courage, although he does look a bit shorter than he did. Oh, I see. It's because he's buckled at the knees.
Eric did say, no embellishment, that those supporting this program to educate kids about sex and sexual diversity, sexual individuality, live and let live, no bullying, are pushing a political agenda. And for the man who, before being dumped as Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, brought us the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Kanga mission into smashing the unions, imagine his shock and hurt and disbelief that anyone could be pushing a political agenda. It's a favourite riposte of politicians whose occupation is politics to accuse anyone who criticises them of having a political agenda, of bringing politics into politics. As irresponsible as bringing caring business class political donations into politics. <clears throat> so spare a thought for poor old Arthur Sins of Dunnis, whom we mentioned last week telling us the only beneficiaries from slashing the company tax companies don't pay would be workers. Arthur so cares about workers. Well, this week, poor Arthur, whose memory becomes blanker than poor old Alan Stocks and Bonds, our old mate Bondy, whose mind eluded him altogether when he faced the beak over getting his money very mixed up with other people's in a one-way exchange. Anyway, poor old Arthur has no idea where caring business class party political nations were coming from and well why would he after all he was only party treasurer and no idea this company subject to investigation by the corruption inquiry was donating to the caring business class party well again how could he he was only a director so uh, so how could he know the company he was director of was donating to the party he was treasurer of well, grammatically, at which but near mine, but as the proverbial hits the fan, we can only say in consoling poor old Arthur losing his mind, Arthur, Arthur, it couldn't happen to a nicer. On the nicer people over in the US of, they're considering allowing delegates to the Republican convention to carry guns. Surely there's no argument against it, unless they want to undermine their own basic argument about the constitutional liberty, freedom and democracy right to bear arms. It's their inalienable God-given right, allowing delegates, and for once we'd have to agree it's a great idea. After all, when they announce the winner, the other blokes, sorry, other guys' supporters, can exercise their constitutional freedom and bang, bang. Then when the other guy claims victory, the first guy's lot can knock him off. Win, win. Finally, as we captured the spirit of this holy dear baby Jesus season, theologians devoting whole tomes to analyze the real meaning of some obscure tract, it strikes me there's a deep and meaningful tome in analyzing the significance of the word crucifixion. Basically, we could argue it means the dear baby Jesus crew, that's the crew bit, the crew, have perfected fiction. And this week we assume they'll make a film called The Reverend Revenant about the dear baby Jesus comeback. But let's hope for the sake of industrial harmony, for the good of all of us, for productivity, for the transition of the economy, those evil unions and lazy avaricious workers never return from the dead. I say, is that Arthur on the cross? Good afternoon. And many thanks to Mr Kevin Healy for his week that was. Don't forget, 9 o'clock tomorrow for Kevin with City Limits. Now to historian and author Brian McKinlay. 
Jen, uh, a couple of weeks ago on your program, I made the first of two talks that uh, relate to Ireland, and today will be the second of those. And I think in my first talk, I looked at the three uprisings in Ireland against Cromwell in the 1640s, uh, in the aftermath of the French Revolution in 1798, and in 1848, after another revolution in France, the um, Second Republic, the Irish on each of those occasions rose against British rule. And there was never a time in all those centuries when there weren't people in Ireland who wanted a republic, who wanted an independent Ireland. The French Revolution fell on very attentive ears in Ireland, and it was a mixture of politics, religion, and the feeling that the Irish were different, like the Scots, of course, today. We are seeing a kind of enactment of the same feeling in Scotland in our time. Uh, but Ireland, it, at the beginning of the 20th century, was plunged into yet another crisis. The crisis actually arose because in the latter part of the 19th century in Britain, the British Liberals, especially led by Gladstone, their most famous Prime Minister, had adopted the idea that Ireland should have its own Parliament again. It had once a Parliament, but the British had abolished that. But Gladstone took up the idea of an Irish Parliament and it was called Home Rule. Now, what he had in mind was exactly like Scotland today. There would be a Parliament, but Ireland would still be part of the United Kingdom with the King of England as, as head of state and all of that. And Ireland always had very close links with other members of other dominions of the British Empire, especially Australia, where about a quarter of the population was of Irish descent. And, of course, the United States and Canada and elsewhere. There's a lot of Irish people, or rather their descendants, in Argentina, for instance. At the beginning of the century, the British Liberals took up this idea, and the Liberals won power again in Britain after a long period of Tory rule in 1905. And in many ways, this was a very reformist government. And one of the items on its agenda was Home Rule for Ireland. Now, that didn't suit the Protestants of Northern Ireland, who didn't want to be part of an Irish parliament, even with limited powers, in which Catholics would predominate. The sectarian issue was a very major one at the time. As a result of that, uh, in the north, the Protestants, with the help of the Tories, led a campaign against home rule. So there were two uh, strands to this policy of the Liberals, who nevertheless pushed ahead with it in defiance of the Protestant north. And um, by 1914, they had eventually come to the conclusion that there would have to be two parliaments. There would have to be a parliament in Northern Ireland, which would remain with its Protestant majority, and the rest of Ireland would have a parliament in Dublin. Now, all of this was in the pipeline, literally almost ready to run, when in 1914 World War I broke out, unexpectedly, as we know, after the assassination of Sarajevo. Everyone in Europe was stunned by the rapidity with which the war swept over them, and no less the Irish. Now, Ireland was in many ways one of the poorest countries in Europe. Ireland had never had coal. It had never had an industrial revolution. The Scots had. Cities like Edinburgh and especially Glasgow were industrial cities because Scotland had coal. 
but uh, not Ireland. And so Ireland remained essentially a peasant country of poor peasant farmers working on land owned by absentee English landlords. I might have mentioned, and I just can't remember now, uh, the famous case of Captain Boycott. Captain Boycott was an English administrator who came to run a large estate in Ireland owned by an absentee English landlord. This was in the 1860s. Boycott was hated by his tenants who paid exorbitantly to get the land and often went hungry to pay their rent. This happened all over Ireland. Well, Boycott wasn't uh, the only one like it, but he was detested by his tenantry and he was English. And the people in the village and the town around where he lived in Ireland, uh, and, and which he ran in a sense, because he was the manager of the largest estate, put a sort of ban on boycott. They wouldn't work for him. He couldn't buy anything in the shops. If he went to the pub, they wouldn't give him a drink. And they had to find a, a word to describe this event. It was a uniquely Irish discovery in a way. And they came up with his name. They called it a boycott. Now, every language on earth has taken that word into the vocabulary, I think, and we all know exactly what we mean when we talk about a boycott, but it was his name. So the Irish were ahead of just about everyone else in coming up with these revolutionary political ideas. And in 1914, when the war broke out, and for a moment... Uh, it seemed that Ireland would get its home rule, but that was postponed until after the war. Now, this didn't suit most people in Ireland. And by 1916, as everywhere else, and Australia included, the uh, effect of the war, the death roll, the entire apparatus of war uh, had begun to arouse huge opposition from people, especially on the left, who ask themselves, what is this war for? What's it about? Why are we losing hundreds of thousands of men in the battlefields like the Somme and other places? Gallipoli, of course. And everywhere there was a growing anti-war movement. And perhaps later we'll look at this in relation to Russia because the Irish Revolution or rising of Easter 1916 was just the first of a wave of revolutions which would sweep Europe in the next two years. And the Russian Revolution was only <coughs> 11 months away. Now, in Ireland, uh, the same animosity and anger about the war blended with the desire for Irish independence. And a group of Irish leaders decided to take the matter into their own hands and in a very Irish manner stage a rising or an uprising and you've asked about that word rising and uprising just before we started and I think it may come from the Gaelic word because one of the things the Irish rebels wanted to do was to actually go back to using the ancient language of Ireland Gaelic which the English had suppressed in the school system as they did in Scotland and everyone spoke English but these dozen Irish leaders decided on a rising in Dublin and that took place on Easter Monday and that's the hundredth celebration at the moment taking place in Ireland and in around the world. And if our listeners have a moment, they might jot down the fact that there's a very good exhibition at the moment in the Melbourne Public Library up the top of Swanson Street on 
Australia and its effects, how it's affected by the Irish Revolution of 1916. Now, what happened, very briefly, was that on Easter Monday, a group of leaders seized the Dublin Post Office and made that the centre of the revolution, a base, as it were, and around Dublin they seized other public buildings, and in other parts of Ireland they did the same. The whole thing was disastrous. The British government immediately ordered up to 20,000 British troops to go to Ireland and put down the rising. And indeed, fighting broke out between British troops who were there in Dublin and the rebels in the post office from day one. Well, it was, uh, I think you'd call it a quixotic venture, uh, a romantic attachment. One of the leaders of the revolution, Patrick Pearce, a poet of all things, to lead a revolution, drafted a famous declaration of the Irish Republic. One of the things he did do was put into it a, a clause which gave women the vote. Now, women didn't have the vote in Britain then, or France, or the United States. They did have it in Australia and New Zealand. Very few countries around the world uh, had any notion of rights for women. And Patrick Pearce put the idea of equality for women at every level in the Irish Constitution, a rather remarkable event for the time. But the Constitution itself is a historic document and is now in Ireland seen as the foundation of the modern Irish state. Well, of course, it was all over in a week. The British army came in great force, suppressed the rebels, took most of the leaders prisoner, or in some cases killed them, and they were all put on trial for treason. They claimed, the British claimed, that after all they were at war, and this was a treasonous act. And all of them were found guilty, and all of them executed within a week of the rising. Pierce... Uh, and many others, Connolly, who'd led the Irish Labour Party, which he'd founded, a socialist and a trade union leader, Connolly was badly injured and was actually dying of gangrene in hospital after the rising, where he'd been hit by bullets. But uh, he was nevertheless taken to Dublin Castle, as they all were. He was too weak to stand, so he was put in a chair and put uh, up against a wall and killed by a firing squad. The fury of the British against the Irish leadership shocked Ireland and it shocked Irish opinion around the world. One writer said, the English are capable of better degree of compassion to heathen Hindus than they are to the Irish or the Scots or the Welsh. Interesting comment in its own way. Now, the Irish rebellion, as far as the British concerned, was over, crushed. But it wasn't, because a new band of leaders almost immediately arose and looked at they, what they could do. The most remarkable of these was a man called Michael Collins. Collins realised the Irish couldn't win a conventional battle on a battlefield of any kind. And Dublin had been a battlefield. The British government even brought in artillery and shelled the centre of the city during the Rising. But you couldn't win against a modern British army. But what Collins went on to invent, I suppose, is the use of what we'd call urban guerrilla warfare. And long after, people like Ho Chi Minh and, and the Chinese revolutionaries uh, spoke about the 
effect of Ireland's revolution on their policies. So Ireland gave revolutionary movements everywhere uh, new ideas about how to wage a guerrilla warfare in cities. And they used the obvious tactics, bombings, assassinations, careful attacks on military targets, which weren't prepared for this kind of guerrilla warfare. And that lasted right through from 1916 to 1922, by which time the Irish rebels had become quite well organised, especially under Collins, who wrote extensively and was in hiding, of course, as all of the Irish leaders were. But a parallel event at the end of 1918, the British government had held an election within weeks of the end of the First World War. And in Ireland, which was part of the United Kingdom after all, the Irish nationalists won every seat in what is now the Republic, about 50 seats in the Commons. Now they decided, these members, not to go to London and take up their seats in the House of Commons. They met in Dublin and unanimously proclaimed themselves as the Parliament of Ireland. They then set up a provisional government for Ireland. Well, this was another revolutionary act against the British rule. Uh, however, uh, the parliament, uh, the members of the Irish parliament, went into hiding and met secretly in various places, as did their provisional government, led by Michael Collins and other people, of course. But the British were then faced with a rebellion on another level. Around the world... Irish communities, as in Australia, were shocked by these events. In 1916 in Australia, the events taking place in Ireland shocked the 25% of Australians who were of Irish descent and had a profound effect here on the coming conscription referendum, which was held in late 1916, which was the first great victory anywhere of an anti-war movement. And the Irish, and particularly the Roman Catholic Archbishop of Melbourne, Dr Mannix, who took to the public platform and spoke against not just the events in Ireland, and he was Irish, of course, uh, an Irish-Australian, but uh, he spoke profoundly about the war, which he described as a dirty trade war. Well, Lenin came up with pretty much the same idea, and that was a remarkable statement for an Archbishop of Melbourne to make. That happened also in the United States and in Canada, but nowhere did the Irish Revolution have such an effect as in Australia. But by 1918 and 19. Uh, the civil war in Ireland had spread across the country and it was pretty obvious that the British would have to maintain martial law and rule by the military to keep Ireland under control. Now Lloyd George, the British Prime Minister, who had been a Liberal but now led a coalition of Liberals and Tories and eventually became a Tory, Lloyd George was a man who never hesitated to use military means. He sent troops to Russia to fight the revolution. He wanted another war with Turkey. You have to think that warmongers of his kind were particularly odious and stupid. It was an age, of course, when it was an attempt to paint the First World War as a, a gallant and brilliant thing. Woodrow Wilson, who every bit as bad as Lloyd George, uh, the President of the United States, of course, uh, Woodrow Wilson said it was the war to end all wars. 
marvellous phrase, and a war to make the world safe for democracy. But of course, lying and deceiving of people. Lloyd George, right to the end, still thought he could beat the Irish down, but in fact, other politicians in Britain had begun to think it was a losing battle. And by 1922, Ireland was in economic stress of a terrible kind after this conflict and everyone in Britain was sick of it. The Irish actually carried the war to Britain, assassinating in London the head of the British army, as General Wolfson. By then the British had begun to realise that they couldn't win in Ireland. Now the King of Britain, George V, a terrible conservative, couldn't even bear the mention of the word republic. And so when the treaty was designed in 1922 to recognise Ireland's new status, it was called the Irish Free State, a meaningless term, by the way, but that avoided the terrible word republic, which the king couldn't bear to think of. In fact, what they came up with wasn't an independent republic, which the Irish revolutionaries had wanted, but a dominion like Australia or New Zealand. There would be a British-appointed governor-general. In a sense, the king would remain the head of Ireland. In Ireland, the Irish revolutionaries, of course, called it a republic and made no secret that, to them, uh, the constitution was going to be a republican one. However, the British appointed a governor-general, and Collins and his friends decided to accept this. They thought the Irish people were at the end of their tether, and it would be something less than that they wanted. But they would get around that in the years ahead. The British appointed Governor-General, when his term ran out, the Irish Parliament appointed the next Governor-General, who was an Irishman. He had a very minor role in Irish affairs. He, in fact, ran a local corner shop and uh, no special attachment was made to the office of Governor-General. The Irish took up the use of the word republic. They didn't care for the phrase Irish Free State and uh, there was no attempt to recognise the King of England in any way. And so during the 20s and the 30s, Ireland became a kind of republic by stealth, if that's the word. Uh, unfortunately, this led to conflicts within the Irish rebel movement. And in 1922, there was actually a kind of civil war between those who didn't even want to accept the Treaty of 1922. And in this, in a minor skirmish between these forces, Michael Collins was, was shot and killed. It was a terrible tragedy for Ireland. He was effectively the head of state at the time of the revolt and a man of considerable principle that left lesser men, especially a man called De Valera, who was really a conservative, though he had been involved with the revolution. De Valera eventually became, for a very long time, a prime minister and... De Valera was a devotee of the Catholic Church. Now, in Ireland, the Catholic Church was powerful and conservative. And although it had gone along with the Republic, it showed little enthusiasm, and the radicals of the Republican movement, and Michael Collins and others, had little time for the Church. But De Valera embarked on a very conservative regime after the Revolution in Ireland. Someone called it the Christian Brothers Republic. Out of this came a very conservative state. 
At the end of the Second World War, Ireland, simply by law, changed its name to the Irish Republic, in effect tearing up that clause of the Treaty of 1922. The British accepted that. There were no more British Governors-General, and Ireland finally, after World War II, achieved the Republican status that the rebels of 1916 had always wanted. The Irish Parliament, the Dáil Éireann as it's called, which had been an illegal body in 1916 and 1918, eventually became, of course, a democratically elected parliament in the years that followed. And oddly enough, it took a long while for Irish women to take up the, as it did in Australia in effect, to take up the clause in the Constitution which gave them equal rights from the very beginning. And there were some very prominent women in the Republican movement. In modern times, Ireland has produced two women presidents. Mary Robinson, quite famously, the first woman president about a decade ago, currently occupies a senior position in the United Nations. And at the moment, Ireland has an attorney general, a deputy prime minister, and the speaker of the Irish Parliament are all women. So at long range, uh, women have taken a fairly major role in Irish politics and history. Ireland at the moment celebrates the 100th anniversary, curiously, without a, a government. There is a um, caretaker government because the election six weeks ago produced a parliament divided among half a dozen parties. The former prime minister has resigned and holds office as a caretaker prime minister while they try and work out a coalition. Ireland, of course, suffered a disaster in 2008 when the European financial crisis was worse in Ireland than almost anywhere else in Europe because of the Irish banks frantically lending out vast sums of money for housing. For a little while, the bankers called Ireland the Celtic Tiger, a phrase that was once used to describe Taiwan's economy. But Ireland's economy came down with a terrible crash and there's been great hardship in Ireland in the last decade and that has, in a way, eroded the support for the major political parties. And as in the United States and Britain and Australia, we live in an age when the major parties have lost much support and there's now a plethora of small parties. So Ireland celebrates, and did yesterday, uh, with much ceremony, the 100th anniversary of the Irish Revolution, without an actual government in power that um, uh, could be anything but a caretaker government. As I said, the effects in Australia were quite profound. The two conscription referendums were defeated, with Dr Mannix, the Archbishop of Melbourne, playing a key role. Mannix, of course, was hated by the Conservatives. Billy Hughes, who was the worst of imperialists, and brought down the Labor government, of which he was Prime Minister, and formed a Conservative government. And he and Mannix were the two principal figures in the two conscription referendums. The second in 1917 was defeated even more decisively. And so the effects of the Irish Revolution in Australia were quite profound. It did lead to a rise of sectarianism after the First World War, in which Catholics were seen as disloyal to the British Empire if they were of Irish descent. And I suspect that disloyalty, that feeling that the Irish were disloyal, isolated them in the Australian community. By the way, there's a quote 
from all people from Santa Maria, who long after the split in the Labor Party in 1955, for which he, among others, was responsible, Santa Maria said that Dr Mannix had told him that the bitterness of the Great Labor split, which produced the DLP in 1955, was nothing compared to the bitterness that followed the 1916 referendum and the Easter Rising in Ireland. It was a European event, like the coming Russian Revolution in 1917, that would have a profound effect on Australian politics and Australian life. Those who are interested might make their way to the public library and have a look at the display, which also looks at the effect of the revolution on Australian society. In fact, the Irish Rising of Easter 1916 was just the first of a series of revolutions that would sweep Europe in the next two years. It was only 11 months away from the first of the two Russian revolutions of 1917, at which we might look in the weeks ahead. Of course, in 1918, there were revolutions in the two defeated powers, the Kaiser's Germany and the Habsburg Empire in Vienna and all of them saw those monarchies swept away. The Irish rising of Easter 1916 was a curious foretaste of what was to come in Europe in the years ahead. Where does Northern Ireland fit into all of this, Brian? Well, yes, I've talked about the Republic and the Easter Rising in Dublin, and I've been talking about what we today know as the Irish Republic, which is overwhelmingly Catholic, even now, though the Catholic Church has been much reduced in power in Ireland with the endless scandals in our time about child abuse, which has been as bad in Ireland as everywhere else. But in 1922, when the treaty set up what we now know as the Republic, Ulster, that is the Protestant North, the six counties, as they were called, that was given a parliament too. But that parliament was a regional parliament and Northern Ireland still remained part of the United Kingdom and it had members in the House of Commons, as it still does. Uh, that was the upshot of the events of 1922. Now, that remained overwhelmingly dominated by a Protestant majority, though there was a very substantial Catholic Republican community in Northern Ireland. And then... In the late 1960s, you may remember that a woman called Bernadette Devlin led a rebellion among Catholics in Northern Ireland to demand civil rights and some sort of say in the government of Northern Ireland, which had been run by men like Paisley, a rather fanatical Protestant extremist. And that led to a revival of conflict which we have lived through in Northern Ireland, which went right through to the Blair regime a decade ago, 15 years ago in Britain. And Blair, who hasn't much to his credit, had one very important victory. He managed to get the Irish and Protestants and Catholics in the North to agree on what they call power sharing. The old system was that the Protestants ran everything, including the police force. But under Blair's arrangement, there would be a parliament, as there'd always been, but the government would be made up of men and women who were both Catholic and Protestant. 
and eventually this came about. Oddly enough, the agreement under Blair was reached, I think it was in... 1996 or 7 and it was reached at Easter and so that became known as the Easter Power Sharing Agreement and that exists today in Northern Ireland. The Government of Northern Ireland is a coalition of parties that are both Catholic and Protestant and the head of the government is a Protestant. It was Paisley until he resigned uh, for ill health and age, and he died recently, and uh, Martin McGuinness, who was a big shot in the IRA. And in the end, Martin McGuinness and Paisley ran the government of Northern Ireland between them. And oddly enough, at the end, they both had substantial agreement on disagreements with Britain. That seems a very Irish uh, compromise, doesn't it? But in the end... Uh, and today, Northern Ireland has this power-sharing arrangement. There is even an arrangement now, though it hasn't taken place, for an annual meeting of the Irish Parliament and the Northern Irish Parliament uh, to be held in Dublin or Belfast on successive occasions. And the two parliaments would meet to discuss matters of common interest. Of course, Ireland joined the European community, as later did Britain. And so both islands, if I can use that phrase, uh, in Europe. But the Irish went further and the Irish Republic adopted the euro. The Irish pound, as it was called, the punt, was abolished and Ireland uses the euro, whereas Britain never did that, so Northern Ireland still uses the British pound. Though along the borders of the two countries, there is no real problem with the border. You can live in on the Irish side, the Republican side of the border and drive your car across to a town in Northern Ireland to do your shopping if you want to do that and people come and go all the time and along the border many of the small shops in the towns along the border between the two islands now take both currencies both the euro and the British pound uh, and that's a small effect of Ireland's joining the European community And that was historian and author Brian McKinlay, and that was the second of two interviews about the history of Irish rebellion against the occupation by Britain. And he'll be back in a couple of weeks, hopefully, to talk about the precursors to the Russian Revolution, first one, 1917. You're listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR, where the time now is 4.41. If People Powered Radio exhibition is on now, get along to Gertrude Contemporary Gallery and enjoy this exciting collaboration. The exhibition features recordings, technological hardware, photos, ephemera and newly commissioned artworks by local artists which frame and interpret the station's history of radical broadcasting. A series of live broadcasts are happening every Friday in April, direct from the exhibition space, talking sovereignty, troublemaking and music. Come and explore the politics of broadcasting, the experience of community and the station's radical history with Gertrude Contemporary Gallery and Art Space. 200 Gertrude Street, Fitzroy, open Tuesdays to Saturdays from 11am. Exhibition finishes April 23rd. For more information, visit 3cr.org.au.
like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say, it's okay, you are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419 I'm speaking now with Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. Kate, first the visit by the United Nations Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon to the Sahrawi refugee camps earlier this month. Who did he meet and how long was he there? Well, yes, Ban Ki-moon, he's getting towards the end of his time in office and he wanted to have a go at sorting out the problem of Western Sahara and... Uh, after 40 years, it was time. So he wanted to visit the region, which he hadn't actually done. He made uh, plans, but Morocco said that he couldn't go to visit uh, the part of Western Sahara that they occupy, El Ayun. So he decided he would just go instead then to the Sahrawi refugee camp and to Algeria and Mauritania, the other two neighbours. And after... He was there, he was really moved by the situation of the refugees, said it was a disgrace that they should be living in these conditions for so long. Then in Algeria, after that, he um, made a statement in which he referred to uh, Morocco as occupying Western Sahara. And that word is one of the key words that Morocco tries to ban from all language. They went spare and the foreign minister got very angry. That was really the trigger for the present crisis that's arisen with the, between Ban Ki-moon and the United Nations. I'll just go back a bit before we get on to that. Who actually did he meet with in the, in the camps? Oh, well, he met with um, President Mohammed Abdelaziz and other leaders, of the political leaders, but... Uh, he also made sure that he had another meeting with the young people because he knew that the present situation is very, very frustrating for these young Saharawis who want to see some action. Well, with the, with the conflict going on for 40 years, I mean, they, that means that uh, only people over 40 could possibly have remembered their homeland. So the others will have all been born in exile, which... Um, and they were, they were impatient to see their uh, go back to Western Sahara. All right, on, on to the controversy. What was the outcome of that? Ban Ki-moon said that he was very disappointed that the foreign minister had spoken in, in the way that he had, and the foreign minister then said that he was going to um, ask the international members of the Minerso mission, which is the United Nations mission for Western Sahara, he was going to ask 84 people to withdraw from Al Ayun, said that they would cut their contribution to $3 million or something like that to UN peace missions. Up until now, the Moroccans had been 
provide food and accommodation for the Minerso mission. And they said that that was going to go, come to an end. For reasons that I don't understand, the Minerso simply complied with Morocco's demands and evacuated their personnel. They did clarify that actually 11 of those 84 were, were no longer employed in the base. And there was one member who stayed because she was pregnant and she didn't want to move for medical reasons. But the rest, of course, they went to Las Palmas in the Canary Islands, which is simply like 100 kilometers across the water. And some of the volunteers were allowed to go home and the permanent staff were asked to remain because they thought they would be going back to work very soon. As far as I know, they haven't gone back to work and this is like another week on from when it happened. After that, then Morocco upped its demands and it asked for the office coordinating the military part of the Minerso mission in Dakla, down in south of Western Sahara. It asked the UN to close that office. And again, the UN has complied. Three of the staff from the Dakla uh, office moved to the base at a place called Althead uh, on the military wall and one person went away I think so they say they're not interfering with the military work of monitoring the ceasefire but the UN say that the office was a very key part of coordinating the efforts of the military section so as far as I know that is not resolved either at the moment we're just waiting for more things to happen and um, the Security Council has met in the past week and Ban Ki-moon was really keen that they should condemn Morocco's unilateral action. Well, I mean, as I say, it's unilateral in one sense, but the UN complied. They, I don't see why they couldn't have dug in. However, the Security Council at the moment has not only France, which is a strong ally of Morocco, but Senegal and Egypt, which are also close to Morocco. And so there are three voices there against a consensus view that might have been made much stronger. However, they did get a consensus on a much weaker motion than what was really necessary. And so it can be said that the uh, the Security Council has asked Morocco to reinstate the Minerso mission and ask it to function uh, as before. What's the impact of the personnel leaving on the ground there? Well, it, it's supposed to disable the diplomatic side. The Moroccans are trying to give the message that they don't want the UN to broker the peace process. They don't mind them monitoring a ceasefire, but they want somehow for the UN to simply accept Morocco's annexation of this territory. Basically, I think that's what they would like to see happen. It seems to me that this is, and other people concerned with the UN, that this is a very dangerous precedent because, well, Stephen Zunas, an expert on the Middle East generally and Western Sahara in particular, he says if the UN accepts Morocco's annexation of this land, 
it will be the first time in the history of the United Nations that a country has been ex- allowed to expand its boundaries through force. And that is really a very dangerous precedent. The UN is also very concerned about the future of its other peace missions if the host country suddenly decides it doesn't want to host the peace mission anymore and wants to send them all home. Again, a bad precedent has been set. It's really a very serious situation that is suddenly blown up now on Western Sahara. Well, where does this leave his promise to increase UN commitment to the people of Western Sahara? Well, I think that, yes, exactly, it leads... It leaves that as a, uh, you know, a wish list for the Secretary-General. It, it doesn't enable that to be in, implemented at all, which is, is, is a great pity because it should have been a really good moment for the um, Sahrawis to get a bit of a fillip and to push forward the, uh, the peace agenda. But um, at the moment, it's not hard, easy to see why exactly what's going to happen. On the other hand... I think anything that destabilizes the stalemate that was existing up until now has got the potential to create a new situation which, with the right kind of leadership, could produce a a solution in a way that hasn't been happening for a very long time. So there's, there's a kind of a hope, but I can't quite see exactly what that's going to be, especially... I can't see how it could be beneficial to the Sahrawis because it does seem as if Morocco is going to be very stubborn about sticking to its guns. In one sense, could you say this trip of Ban Ki-moon as being counterproductive? See, that's how um, there's a, um, an observer who was a political advisor to James Baker back in 1997 to 2003 or whenever he left. Anna Theophilopoulou, I think she's called, she tries to be very neutral in her observations about this situation, which she's followed ever since she left that position with James Baker, who was the UN personal, uh, UN Secretary General's personal envoy for Western Sahara. And he's the one who got the closest to producing a peace plan that was going to work. Sees it as a error on on Ban Ki Moon's part, because she's so aware of the sensitivities that exist in this whole issue. But uh, well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure because I think it's it's really good to have somebody in his position go to the camps and make public statements about how the present condition uh, situation is not acceptable. And I still can't see that that's unhelpful, really. And I could imagine that the Sahrawi people had great expectations from this visit. Well, they did. I mean, a lot of them have, needless to say, become pretty, have a pretty jaundiced view of the United Nations. They were extremely hopeful in 1991, then the hope, renewed in 1997 when James Baker came on board as a former foreign secretary and, and you know, a, a secretary of state and somebody who we thought had real clout. But, you know, when that came to nothing, the disillusion with the United Nations has really only been growing among the Sahrawi population. You know, they, they will have 
you know, had had some more hope, but I think they're now pretty cynical. And yet at the same time, there's no other body that could broker peace in the way that the United Nations can. You know, it's imperfect, but it's the only institution uh, of this kind in the world. And we need to try and make it work. On the 1st of March, there was a declaration of an unlimited hunger strike by the Gadim Izik prisoners. I believe that hunger strike is still on, but could you first identify who the Gadim Izik prisoners are? Yes, there's uh, 20-odd prisoners in uh, Rabat, in, that's in the, the capital of Morocco, who have been there since 2010 when they were arrested during a mass protest near the uh, main town of Western Sahara, El Ayun. This was a very unusual uh, happening. Up to 10,000 people had marched out of the uh, towns and set up, sorry, no, more than that, uh, 20,000, I think, people, but about seven to 10,000 tents were there at the peak of the protest. And it actually lasted some weeks. People were coming and going a bit, but... Uh, but at the, at the peak, there were um, a lot of people there. And they had a, a wonderful few weeks, really. But then the Moroccan authorities were getting very alarmed by what was happening. And although uh, negotiations were taking place to between a team of, what do they call them? I can't remember. But anyway, the, 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 the little committee from the protest were talking with the authorities about getting better conditions for Sahrawis living in occupied Western Sahara, better housing, more jobs, all kinds of ways in which they'd been discriminated against. And that looked as if it was going to reach a conclusion, but the hawks among the uh, authorities decided to move in anyway, and they broke up the camp. A lot of people got arrested, but they identified uh, about 25 people as ringleaders. Since then... About two years later, which was longer than they should have been held without trial, there was a trial held. It was a a ridiculous trial. It had no proper standing in law. The the defendants were not allowed to bring witnesses on their side. They were uh, convicted on the basis of statements made under torture and in some cases they were blindfolded and told to sign. They didn't read the accusations that were being made against them. Video evidence that was produced didn't identify any of the any of the accused. So it was a completely complete sham of a trial. Nevertheless, a couple of those people who had been arrested originally were deemed to have served a short sentence of two years and they were released. So that left 23, one of whom is actually uh, living in Spain. He was convicted in absentia. So then there's 22, I think, uh, left in Rabat. Now, out of those, quite a lot of them are in very poor health. That's not the first time most of them have been in prison for their political opinions. A lot of them are not able to take part, therefore, in the hunger strike. I think there's around about a dozen, in fact, who are on hunger strike. They are suffering various 
problems. They've lost a lot of weight, and I haven't seen a report recently, but the after uh, about the first two weeks, they'd, they'd, uh, I saw a health bulletin about how who, who, how much weight each one had lost and what other problems they were suffering from because you know some of them have diabetes and conditions like that that need constant medication. There have been um, other hunger strikes in in sympathy in the Basque Country in Paris and maybe other parts of Spain. But as far as I know, there has been no move by the Moroccan authorities to meet their demands, which are both for better conditions for themselves in the prison. Well, for, I mean, initially they want to, of course, they're asking to be released as, as improperly uh, imprisoned in the first place. But then they would want to have if they're still there, they've got to have better conditions, but they are also asking the United Nations to organise a referendum of self-determination to resolve the problem with Morocco in uh, occupied Western Sahara. They said at the beginning it was an unlimited hunger strike. I think it'll probably go on until the first one gets hospitalised. But it's it's, uh, clearly been a very long, 29 days now, uh, it's a long time to to be on hunger strike. I don't know how long it will take, but probably in the next 10 days, there'll be some problem. uh, Somebody will have to go to hospital to be revived or, or whatever. The only weapon that they can use really and you just wish they didn't have to do that because it does compromise their own health so severely and imagine what it must be like for their families yes uh, some of the families have been visiting they have got facilities where they can actually meet with the prisoners and spend time with them and take food to them in normal circumstances but they I don't know what they'll be doing now, but uh, the prisoners' uh, families have got a house that they've rented for the uh, visits to facilitate these visits because it's a very long and expensive journey for the people, for the families to come up from Western Sahara to to, to Rabat. So they do need to um, have somewhere to stay when they come. What pressure is there on Morocco to? Come to the table on this issue. I'm not sure. I mean, the the the, uh, the the statement that they made has been taken to all the embassies to ask the uh, you know, other countries to put pressure on Morocco to meet these requests. I think they're using as much leverage as they can, but it is always tough getting people to take notice of Western Sahara because it's been going on so long they kind of just tolerate it as, as, as background instead of seeing it as something that really needs attention and it's very, very hard to get the proper kind of coverage that it deserves. And that's Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association and as Kate said, 3CR is one of the very few places where it is discussed. All your promises have been broken now Just like right to 
Jermaine Greer, and you're listening to 3CR. Treaty Now. Today, the second in a series of interviews with people who have contributed to both the establishment and continuation of 3CR as we celebrate our 40th birthday. And that person is Bruce Francis, who was manager from the late 80s to the mid-1990s. I asked Bruce first, what was his first introduction to 3CR? My first introduction to 3CR was when I came in to volunteer. And uh, we decided that we wanted to come in and do a program. So we came and did the training, which absolutely terrified me. Who's we? My partner and I both came in at that time. We enrolled in the training course and uh, away we went. And as soon as someone shoved a microphone in my front of my face, I completely clammed up. We hoped to do a trade union program, rank and file program, and a, a lesbian gay program. And that's what we did. We did both those. The LNG show, uh, which was at 10.30 to midnight on Wednesday nights. The Picket Line, which was a program which went to air on the weekend, the time slot I don't remember. Both of which were immense fun and, you know, had their own challenges but um, and quite different. The LNG show, we had some guests, we did lots of chatter, had lots of fun, very laid back, engaged lots of people, did a bit of talk back, talked about, you know, topical issues, sort of was a bit thrown together at the time, you know, we all prepared something and brought it together and stuff. So that was really nice and a really lovely way to sort of meet people and stay in touch with what was actually happening in the community. And the challenges? Challenges is always doing a weekly program, really. <laughs> Finding the time and doing it justice. And they were the main sort of challenges, I think. The other challenges for me were around, you know, just quite knowing who your audience were. And every so often we would get these letters, because it was letters in those days, from someone who was living out in some suburb or we'd get a phone call from someone out in some suburb who was sort of listening to us on their headphones in bed at night so no one would know. And the whole sort of sense that you were actually communicating to someone who wasn't out, who didn't feel safe to be out, clearly, you know, afraid about coming out but also just so thankful that there was voices out there that they could listen to, which, in a sense, were saying to them that, you know, they were OK. And was CO a groundbreaker in that sense with an LNG show? Uh, yes, clearly. For actually out broadcasters, uh, just, you know, a whole show, hour and a half, dedicated to lesbian and gay issues, clearly was something really special. And in those times, we used to do specials as well. I mean, the station was fantastic in terms of, you know, supporting us as a group of broadcasters to do annual Stonewall Day broadcasts, Stonewall Day being a very significant day for gay liberation. And we did those for a number of years where we'd take over the whole of the station. And, you know, you would have expected in those days that station management might have turned around and said, well, 
sorry, we're going to upset some of the listeners in other time slots, so please don't. But that was not the case. And uh, so we were able to broadcast uh, and people really sort of got behind it and really sort of supported what we're doing. What about the rank and file trade union show? Was that sort of a groundbreaker as well? Because we had a lot of union programs on at that time. Yep, it was. I mean, CIS had a history of fairly progressive trade unions being involved, so um, so it wasn't complete surprise. But it was very much aimed at talking to rank and files and not necessarily talking to leadership. And we did some really interesting stuff, you know, from around the country. So, you know, sort of road disputes. We did issues around asbestos and asbestos and Indigenous communities. We did stuff around gender and trade unionism. While we covered disputes, we also covered issues and talked to a really interesting group of people around that. And often we would be down on the picket line talking to people on the picket line and getting their views and you know talking about what those sort of actual disputes were. But it was usually a single theme for half an hour, whether it was a particular dispute, whether it was a particular issue, so done in depth. It was great. We had a team of about 10 or about ten of us and it was usually two or three people who presented each week. So you got a break and you sort of, you know, you were able to sort of come back and do something that was a bit in depth and you were able, because there was many of us, to pursue your own particular interests and the, the sort of things that you were interested in as a trade unionist. Again, I thought it was a really interesting radio and, and really true to the CR sort of cause of actually giving the little people voice. So even when it was disputes that, you know, there were quite progressive unions involved in, it was still taking a slightly different angle and different approach to it. I think we upset a few right-wing unions, but... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But apart from that, I think it was pretty all right, really. It didn't upset any of the left-wing unions? Um, Not too much, I don't think. (laughs) Big step from being a programmer to a manager... Had you had experience as a manager in other fields? Yes, I had um, worked as sort of a coordinator of a number of small organisations. I had headed up the Regional Housing Council down in Gippsland. You know, I had been the coordinator of a youth refuge. I had worked for Corporate Housing um, Association. So I had done some of that. It was sort of a bit of a surprise to me because a few months earlier I'd applied for a job as the volunteer coordinator and I hadn't got an interview. And then I got an interview and actually got appointed as the manager. So I really was a bit scared about it, really. <laughs> I mean, it it seemed like a good idea at the time. And then <laughs> once I got the job, I thought, oh, shit, what have I done? But, you know, see, I was an organisation I really believed in. I believed in the approach, I believed in what it was doing, I believed in the impact it was actually having and the role it could play. So I thought, you know, being young and sort of a bit sillier than even I am now, I'd throw my hat in the ring. A big crossover period at that time, though, wasn't it, between when the managers changed, that the new manager got a lot from the one who was leaving? Yeah, yeah, I was I was really lucky because um, Jeff Swanton, who had been here before me, had been here for about six and a half years. And Jeff was going off to set up a small business, but I think there was a six-week handover period, which was pretty good, really, because it was in the lead-up to Radiothon, which, you know, is do or die for the station, really, in terms of its income. I was walked through the whole sort of process and the systems that were in place. I was so impressed. 
It's hard to imagine from an outside point of view just what goes into fundraising when you're a little community station because every broadcaster's involved. So you've got 400-odd people involved. You've got to coordinate that. You've got to you know, encourage people. You've got to give people the resources to be able to do it. You've got to have the systems in place to find the money and get the money and you know, get the money in and bank the money and everything else. Everyone just gets one go, so they have to make it really work on that, that day. So everyone has to be really fired up. So it's, it's a really important. And, and at that stage, it was a six-week preparation, all mapped out, two-week sort of period of time. And, and then a very big collapse at the end of it, really, because you're exhausted. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm forever grateful for the handover that Jeff gave me. I think I would have struggled otherwise. Yeah, so I think it was, it was fantastic. What about things that you were hoping that you could bring into the station? New programmers, new ideas? Yeah, it was sort of a really interesting time for the station because I think, you know, politics was in the middle of changing. It was the late 80s. A lot of the established sort of left was sort of starting to fracture and there were movements rather than parties. So there was a whole different sort of outlook of what was progressive. For me, broadening the base of what people thought of as progressive and what who should be given a voice and who needed to be given a voice was one of the things that I was really interested in. So bringing in, you know, new ethnic communities that were more recently arrived than the established communities that were here, boosting lesbian and gay broadcasting, boosting women's broadcasting, looking at um, environmental broadcasting, were all sort of issues that we really wanted to explore. Was that the time when we had an Aboriginal employee? Yes, when I started work we did have an Aboriginal paid employee. And certainly we did increase our Aboriginal broadcasting at that time. And again, that was really important. And there was a whole emphasis on getting out and about in the community. I mean, we had, we had big sort of special broadcasts on a regular basis, you know, Invasion Day and other, you know, Stonewall Day, International Women's Day. When the nurses' dispute happened, you know, we had a program which ran every morning for the eight weeks I think it was of the dispute which just broadcast around the nurses and you know gave a voice to the union but also really importantly gave a voice to a whole lot of nurses and became a focal point for real information about what was actually happening. So there's a lot of emphasis on that and that sort of really sort of that vibrancy that comes from engaging the community. You know we had our first Open days where we invited our listeners into the station, you know, we had stalls everywhere, we had the street blocked off, we had bands playing, a much bigger emphasis on live music, which was really exciting, I think, programs which had live bands in every week, programs which, you know, looked at that sort of what was happening around and talked to people around that. All those things were around not trying to sort of control what was going on, but really reflect the vibrancy of what was happening in progressively, in a political sense, in a social sense, and in an artistic sense. And the ethnic challenges at that time, was Timor during that time? Timor, and the station was, you know, really supportive of the Timorese struggle. 
There were other liberation struggles that the station um, was really supportive of in um, Central and South America. The Palestinians, all programs. That, and as manager, it was you know my responsibility, but also my pleasure to actually engage, be the person responsible for engaging with all the non-English language programs. It was the passion of people from their communities to be able to talk to their communities about what was happening to them, which were in many cases were quite life-threatening, obviously, situations, real struggles for justice and independence, was just a privilege to watch, really. Um, And the way people did connect to those communities and kept those communities engaged and active in those struggles. And, of course, even though those ethnic programs were broadcasting their own language, they then sort of communicated with the other programmers and they they were interviewed and the wider community knew more about the struggles in that way. Indeed. And, you know, many of the broadcasters spoke extremely good English, uh, uh, were fabulous interview talent. They knew exactly what was going on. They were able to give a perspective, which really meant that CR was offering a perspective on struggles that other stations just couldn't match, you know, because they didn't have the sort of the talent and the knowledge. And it was part of the DNA of the organisation. And we used to have the ABC ringing up occasionally and asking, can you tell us who, you can, who we can interview on this such and such a topic? <laughs> That's right. And some of them were probably ex-CR people who'd been trained and had been broadcasters here anyway, so they had they had good links in. That's very true. I mean, I think the other thing for me is the station covered issues that others wouldn't touch and gave a perspective on issues um, that others were touching but that was very different. And, you know, that's always, I think, been something that's really special around CR. The other thing for me was the training and it's just hard to imagine you know a station which most of the time you know had four or five employees had 450 people doing programs all with the skills to do it the great percentage of them like I was when I walked in the door shoved a microphone in my front of my face I completely clammed up who the station trained and encouraged and gave opportunities to at times came back and you know critted and tried to raise the standards of what people were doing and enabled people to, to do that and to teach how to do that. And a lot of those people not only became very good broadcasters on CRs but went on to actually have a career in radio, largely in ABC and SBS, but people, technical people as well as people who who fronted the, the microphone. So in that respect, you know, it's done an amazing thing but And that's a small group of them, but for people like me and for others, it just gave us a confidence to be able to speak, a confidence to be able to know, you know, what worked in terms of speaking, to not fear public speaking, and to get out there and actually become better activists because of the training um, that we'd actually had at CL. You are listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR. This is Tuesday Home Time. I'm Jan Bartlett and I'm speaking with Bruce Francis, who was manager of 3CR from the late 1980s to the mid-1990s. Another issue during that time was the 
electromagnetic radiation, and that involved the transmitter at the back of the Collingwood Town Hall. And in a sense, all the programming here on CR helped to move that transmitter away from Collingwood to a new transmitter site at Hobbers Crossing. Probably the thing I didn't want to remember, Jan, but <laughs> a huge, a huge piece of work. And the tower had been put up in Collingwood. It, you know, worked perfectly well, but there were health and safety issues. Council decided they wanted us to move. We agreed. We didn't have any choice, but we agreed anyway. But then, you know, the task as a little community station of actually trying to find somewhere to broadcast from was enormous. And we spent months and months looking. We eventually bought a piece of land near the sewerage farm out in Werribee. Then we had to actually raise the money to actually build not just one but two transmission towers because the site was on the edge of town and because of the licence provisions, we couldn't broadcast into Geelong. And so we had to push all the signal towards east, towards this side of town. That required two towers so you could sort of distort where the signal went. So it was around, you know, $350,000 at the time to actually construct this. We needed a huge piece of land to do it on, not just to do it so you could have the two towers, but to have the area where you could actually have it safely broadcast. The council kept getting stroppier and stroppier and giving us timelines and demanding when we were going to leave and threatening to close down the station. And the work, of course, got delayed and delayed and we got promises and promises and I made promises and promises and then I broke those promises and promises and then I had to extract more promises. Big for time. Um, but eventually it happened. Um, and eventually... You know, it meant that we actually had our own site, which meant we had our own building, we had our own site, we had a secure future. And I think, you know, as an independent voice, you cannot underestimate the importance of that. And you look back these days and see, you know, the cost of rentals and stuff. I mean, most of CR's meagre income now would be taken up in paying rental costs if we didn't have those assets, the station building and the transmission facility. So it was, it was a really good thing and we had a fabulous day because we, we invited listeners to come out to the site for the opening and to have a tree planting and we had Rod Quantock do it and we had Rod Quantock take listeners on a train journey to Hopper's Crossing and then with his trusty chook and a stick escort them over to the site and it was a hilarious day. You know, he was on the, there was a golf driving range next to it and he was in there chatting to the golfers and sort of interrupting them and stuff and heaven knows i had to get be out there so i i missed the trip but heaven knows what the rest of the commuters thought as as rod did his one of his famous impromptu tours of of melbourne were license renewals still an issue when you were the manager license renewals when i was manager were a huge piece of work i did two of them I reckon we produced volumes of information at least 18 inches high when they're sort of you know, stacked pile on, on page on page. The actual report, the whole 
evidence to support that report, volumes and volumes and volumes of evidence. I, first of all, resented it deeply, as one can imagine. But on the other hand, it was also meant that the station actually collected its history as it went along. There wasn't a media release that didn't go into a box. There wasn't, you know, a report, a cram guide, uh, whatever was actually produced and written, which didn't go into an archiving box, which meant that this whole history, not just of the station, but history of a really important history of social movements, of struggles, you know, domestically and internationally, was actually recorded. And that's part of the sort of the history of the station. So really important. And when we came to organise the big birthday bash, we were able to go back really simply and look at what the highlights had been over the first 25 years of the station and document them. And it was amazing to go back and look at what the station had done, what it had been involved in, what it had achieved, what had changed. And it was a really important part of history of Melbourne and uh, of progressive Melbourne. And I'd reckon that the people reading would be pretty impressed too. Ah, yes. There was never... I mean, even though, you know, our licence renewal was sort of um, opposed always by a range of conservative politicians, there was never a question that we wouldn't get our licence because... With all these things, you know, when you're under threat, what our response was, we did it better than anyone else. <laughs> we ensured that we met all the criteria like, you know, other people hadn't, and um, we just made sure that we excelled. Nevertheless, were there any threats of legal action during your time? Uh, there was regular threats of being sued. It was one of my great delights to to go and see our pro bono lawyer, John Howie, on a regular basis uh, and chat about old times and the current crisis. Look, most of them were unfounded. Um, Most of them were people objecting to the politics. We did have one case where someone during the Balkans conflict overstepped the mark in terms of defamation and the station had to pay for that. But On the whole, I mean, part of the training of people was around defamation, what you could and couldn't say, and, you know, how that actually played out. People listened. I mean, as a manager, I listened for those sorts of things, and if people were crossing the line, then that was one of the things you do. We had whole internal procedures for investigating complaints, you know, for taking action, for, you know suspending broadcasters for insisting they went and did, you know, formal, more training. And I think I even sent the chairperson on sort of additional training at one stage. It was also a balancing act in some respects with the the different ethnic groups who might be warring against each other back in their home countries, so you had to make sure that that sort of program wasn't on the same night or following that one that they mightn't agree with. Mm. Yeah, I think that was particularly the case with um, Yugoslavia. And often we would have requests from particular groups to have a show on the station so they could be opposed to somebody else, not because they had progressive politics. That was sort of fairly easy to make it, you know, easy to make a decision about. But yes, it was. And I mean, it was just part of, I guess it was part of building the culture of the station that 
while it was a voice for each program, what was the bigger issue and the more important one was that CR existed so that everyone had a voice. And that was really part of the culture that we tried to sort of get across to everyone who was a broadcaster. It wasn't that you could come here and do what you like. That wasn't what the station was about. It was actually a station that was around really giving a voice to issues, to culture, to whatever it was, but we were a serious station and we took our collective responsibility seriously. When you left after how many years? I did seven and a half years. I think I'm still the longest serving manager over the time. Were the things that you'd hoped to achieve that you didn't quite get to? Oh, yes, lots. <laughs> I mean, we did a big um, job on trying to redo the breakfast slot. We got some funding for someone to work part-time to assist in that. It certainly made the breakfast show better and there was some good coverage, but there was still some inconsistency. And, you know, it's always a balance at CR between you have programmers who are new, um, who need to learn, you have programmers who are really enthusiastic, and, um, you know, making sure you, you have consistency across the program is always a really challenge. I would have liked to have had a better system for providing programmers with feedback. That was difficult. We could have done with sort of better and more up-to-date equipment, especially stuff that would enable us to be out and about more. Although I do remember very dearly our first mobile phone, which um, if you carried it for more more than an hour, you had to go to a chiropractor because it weighed about two kilos. Um, But it did have, you know, two microphones, so you could actually interview people out there on the street, which was fantastic. I think trying to get the emphasis right around how to engage with the community and the special broadcasts. I think we did a lot of them. But a lot of it was by someone who was enthusiastic and that's how it was driven, rather than as a manager sort of working, saying, well, this is what's really strategic to do. But look, my regrets as a manager uh, are minor compared to not my personal achievements, but the achievements of the station. And very much for me, the job of being manager was around enabling other people to do really exciting things, and lots of people did really exciting things. You mentioned the brick phone. One thing we should acknowledge is the, or were the technical innovations from our technical team? Yeah. Um, I mean, the tech team were, were fantastic. We couldn't employ them for many hours, but... We did. They found ways around things. The fact that we could now do outside broadcasts with the brick phone rather than by setting up, you know, Telstra points, which, you know, you had to do weeks in advance and do a whole lot of technicals with, just transformed the fact that we could actually do things. We had talk back really early. And I think it's also worthwhile saying, you know, as a, as a talk, largely talk radio station, much more intensive use of resources. I mean, you need more people to interview. You're not filling up the time playing music. But we're also sort of a leader in terms of producing programs which we then shared with others, you know. That was also a really important part of it. You know, programs like Stick Together, Women on the Line, Earth Matters, a range of programs that got broadcast. In those days, because we made cassette tapes and posted them... (laughs) (laughs) 
And then the transmission tower itself. I mean, a huge, 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 huge job for a small little organisation to do. So lots of technical innovations, always looking for ways to actually improve um, the studios, you know, and how to do things. Um, A little bit before my time, before we went digital, but um, that's, that's obviously continued. And just finally, you did, did touch on it before that we facilitated the careers of many, many people, both on-air people, producers and technical people working in other fields of the media because of our training. Indeed. And look, the CR training was great. It was always great. It was done by volunteers. It was part of people's ongoing commitment. People did a range of stuff. I mean, some of the stuff around, you know, loosening up your voice and, and stuff... I still do occasionally, you know, because they were, they were really good techniques that were actually taught. I still can't stand it when people err uh, and um, and I hope I haven't done it, because if I have to listen to it, I, I will be annoyed at myself. Those sort of little things as well as the big things around how you construct an interview, how you do it, how you edit it, were all stuff that was really important. And the quality that came out of it, I think, is just demonstrated by the fact that so many people from this station have gone on to make careers in the media. I suppose the last thing for me would be to say, look, it's 40 years that the station's been around. I hope it's around for the next 40 years. I mean, people have been predicting the demise of radio for a very long time. It hasn't happened. I don't think it will happen because there's something quite intimate about radio it's something quite immediate about radio that sense of people talking to people cr i think has been a trailblazer it's still the leader and the benchmark in terms of actually engaging the community of actually giving a voice to the community and not just to any community but giving a voice to the progressive community for those who care to talk about issues of justice to talk about issues of equality, to talk about, you know, class and, and culture. I think the role it plays is really, really, really important. And the role it plays in empowering people on a personal level, empowering communities and giving communities the power to actually take a bit of control of their future cannot be underestimated. And that was former manager... Bruce Francis, who was here from the late 80s to the mid-90s. Makes you feel good, doesn't it, when you hear someone talking about 3CR like that? Right, gentlemen, this panel is now on air. In July 1976, from an old warehouse in High Street, Armadale, 3CR Community Radio hit the airwaves heralding 40 years of independent, community-owned and controlled radio. This will be the first station owned and operated by a cooperative of community organisations on a Melbourne-wide basis. This is 3CR. As the status quo of old media is challenged, as publications come and go, in a country with the highest concentration of media ownership in the world, 3CR continues to broadcast radical, insightful radio 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We're not talking about land rights, we're talking about sovereignty. That's why it's important for us to be at the 10 Embassy. From the protests against the Franklin River Dam to the 1998 waterfront dispute, from the east-west tunnel picket to the Aboriginal 10 Embassy, the history of 3CR is dynamic and passionate and ongoing. I was born here. I will die here. 
I am not moving. So as we celebrate 40 years in 2016, we ask you, our volunteers, listeners and supporters, to join in in saying... Happy birthday, 3CR! Her life hung by a thread because of this work, and on 3rd of March, the thread was seven. I'm referring to Berta Kakaris, who 22 years ago co-founded Koping, the Civil Council of Popular and Indigenous Organisations of Honduras. On that day, the 3rd of March, she was shot dead at her home after suffering years of intimidation and threats against her life linked to her activism. Honduras is the most dangerous country in the world for environmental defenders, with 101 murdered between 2010 and 2014, according to NGO Global Witness, and the killings continue. Not only environmental defenders, but journalists, labour leaders, human rights activists, feminists and LGBT activists. In a recent interview, Berta said, to fight repression in Honduras is to fight for our whole continent. In this interview, her friend Beverly Bell, founder of Other Worlds and many other international economic and social justice groups, talks about Berta. Beverly, from a very young age, she was aware of the violence that was the reality of life in Central America, and that was through the work of her mother. Can you talk about her early years? Yes. Doña Berta, Berta Cáceres' mother, was a remarkable woman, is a remarkable woman. She bore 13 children and raised them mainly alone, which in those days was really something, but she chose being alone over being accompanied by a husband who was not a good partner. She was a leftist from way back and a feminist, though I doubt she used that term. She actually was mayor of her town and governor of her state at a time when women were neither. And she raised her children with a very strong social conscience. The children, for one thing, Berta has told me several times, used to gather around in the evenings around a radio listening to the revolutionary radio stations coming out of both Cuba and Sandinista-run Nicaragua. It was illegal to listen to these in Honduras, but her mother didn't care. She was committed to the truth, and she was committed to justice, and Berta was raised with this very, very strong social conscience. And I'll say a funny little story. After Berta was charged for sedition and was basically in house arrest after having been in hiding for a long time, and there was danger of her being locked up for years in jail under this illegitimate government, someone asked her mother, aren't you worried about your daughter? And her mother said, according to Berta, absolutely not. She's doing exactly what she should be doing. And the people that she belonged to, the Linka indigenous peoples, long oppressed by their colonizers? Long oppressed by their colonizers. Ever since the Spanish first arrived, they have been trying to exploit the indigenous people, as all over the Americas, and of course 
most of the world for their labor, their lands, the riches under their lands, the waters on their lands, the trees on their lands, everything. The Lenca people were the first ones who rose up against the Spanish, and they have continued to have a very strong role, but they were not organized as a political force in modern history until Berta and her then-partner formed what is the Civic Council for Popular and Indigenous Organizations of Honduras, or COPIN, by its Spanish acronym, in 1993. And this was just after the peace accords had been signed in El Salvador, and I believe in Guatemala, and opened up some political space. So these two set about, Berta being only, I think, 23 at the time, set about starting an organization that would both build pride in indigenous people, because there, there was no pride in being indigenous in those days, and then would construct that identity into a base of power. And that is exactly what they have done, and for most of the history of Copin, what Berta herself has done as the main leader throughout. What have been the main foci for that group? Oh, Jan, there are so many foci. They have fought against the tyranny of the Honduran government, was run by an elected president in 2009. Since then, the U.S. coup, U.S.-backed coup, well, I could say U.S. coup, against that president, Manuel Zelaya, has meant that there has just been a literal dictatorship, except that they have gone through the game of having elections, which the U.S. certified, but it's been a dictatorship. So they have fought against that. They have fought for participatory democracy. They have fought for power for all people of color and, of course, indigenous peoples. They have fought for rights for women and LGBTQ individuals. They have fought against the militarization of the country and the six U.S. military bases that are on their country, on their land within the nation of Honduras. They have fought against capitalism, especially international capitalism, and the corporations that are plundering their lands. They have fought against the debtor cartel of the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund. They have led so many fights for collective land titling, for the protection of their own lands against this plunder by all of these multinationals who have poured into the country since the coup. Basically, in a nutshell, they have fought for a society that is fully just and where the citizens themselves hold power. Berta also has been a strong, strong leader for, I would say, the struggle for imagination. That is, to let us know that we are not condemned to live in the world as it is, and to put everything on the line to construct a new world. How many of those battles have they won? Oh, they have won so many battles. My goodness, I was just compiling a list last night. It's just unbelievable. They threw out Copine, just this one group, threw out 33 logging companies and contracts from their lands, all of which were illegal. They stopped 33 logging operations. They led the national fight to win the government signing on to Convention 169 of the International Labor Organization, which, though that sounds 
very esoteric, is actually the main treaty used all around the world to protect indigenous peoples because it gives them the right to free, prior, and informed consent of indigenous peoples before projects happen on their land. Of course, this hasn't been applied, but they won it. They have won more than 100 land titles and, for the very first time, gotten those land titles to be given communally, that is, to the Lanka people and not just to individuals. They have started the first indigenous training school. They have started and run the Voice of the Lenka popular radio. They created what's called Utopia, which is a basically a liberated zone that they have set up where they run retreats and meeting centers. They launched, and did not win, but a boycott on their land of all employees in capital by international financial institutions. They have just done such extraordinary work, and this is a people with no money, no institutionalized power. Most of the members are illiterate. Most of them don't even have cell phones. It's really extraordinary. And then they won. Now, this was the proximate cause of Bertha's death because this just drove the powers that be crazy. Then they won for a year and a half a victory over a dam that was, and once again is, being established on Lankan lands. It's run by a Honduran company called DESA, D-E-S-A, but in fact it is backed by the Finnish Development Bank, the Dutch Development Bank, many other forms of capital, and it used to be also invested in by the World Bank, and Sino Hydro, which is the Chinese state-owned bank, which is the, I'm sorry, Chinese state-owned dam company, the largest dam company in the world. But pressure from Kopin did three things. One, they got all construction on the land, on the dam, stopped for a year and a half. And then they also were able to expel the World Bank and this gigantic Chinese dam company, Sino Hydro. Was Berta and her comrades influenced by the Zapatistas in Chiapas? Absolutely. Their public spaces are full of posters of the Zapatistas. They invoke the Zapatistas. Many indigenous movements all over the world have been influenced. But for Copin, the Zapatistas have definitely been a model of indigenous power and resistance. Talk more about Berta and her life, how many children, and are the children following in in her footsteps? Berta has four children, grown but young, in their 20s. One may still be a teenager. They were actually sent into exile years ago, maybe six years ago, because the threats against them were so great. One wanted to stay, but three of them she sent into other countries in Latin America because they were being used by the government as ways to try and coerce Berka. There were many threats against their lives. They have grown up into beautiful human beings. We are all so proud of them. Since Berka's death, they have just been speaking out everywhere with such clarity, with such grace, with such conviction. And Bertita, who is one of Berka's daughter, just spoke to the General Assembly of the United Nations, and when they cut her off after five minutes, 
as is customary, she, Berkeley's daughter to the core, just kept right on speaking. And I was told that the whole audience raised to its feet in applause to support her. Oh, my goodness. Berka was always so very, very proud of them, and she would be even more proud these days for the way that they are continuing to carry the flag. You've got a presidential race in the U.S. at the moment. One of those candidates is Hillary Clinton. Talk about her role in the coup in 2009. Yes. Well, first of all, on behalf of the U.S. people, on whose behalf I'm not authorized to speak, but never mind, I apologize to everyone in Australia and around the world for whichever of the two most likely candidates win because they're going to both unleash horror on the world and we in the U.S. who care are just astonished that we could be down to this. But yes, Hillary Clinton, yes indeed. You can draw a straight line from Hillary Clinton to Berta's dead corpse lying on her floor in her home on the morning of March 3rd. I don't mean that hyperbolically at all. There are many instances in which Hillary Clinton has come out and bragged about her role in the 2009 coup against, as I mentioned, the last democratically elected president of Honduras, who was Manuel Zelaya. Right after the coup, Hillary came out and actually called it a coup d'etat, but she wiggled back and back and back until two months later, she said that the circumstances are, quote, mucky. And in her book, her last book, Hard Choices, this shameless woman, this duplicitous, lying woman, had the gall to actually say, we rendered the liar moot. Now, this is an extraordinary statement to make, even privately, let alone publicly, when you're speaking about the democratically elected president of a sovereign nation. But, of course, the U.S. does not consider it sovereign. It doesn't really consider many places sovereign. But it certainly doesn't consider Honduras, which has long been its client state in Central America. The U.S. used Honduras as the base, both for the Contras, that is the counter-revolutionaries that the U.S. turned into a body of soldiers in launching another illegal war against the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, the U.S. also has used Honduras as its training base for death squads that were deployed during the revolutions in El Salvador and Guatemala. And today there are six, count them, six U.S. bases on Honduras. So the U.S. has used Honduras as its base to try to control all other countries in Central America, especially those who have the audacity to go a little bit left. So what happened is that the U.S. helped organize this coup, and then once it was pulled off, the U.S. made sure that, as Hillary said, the liar was rendered moot, and that the new group of military-backed, well, I'll just call them dictators, retained power. Since that time, there have been two elections, I believe, and both of them have been totally fraudulent. The U.S., however, came out and gave their seal of approval on them. So basically what has happened, without most people looking, because most people choose not to recognize the fact that, in fact, many countries are being run by 
total puppets with just this absurd veneer of an election, the country of Honduras is still being run by these people. And just before Berta died, she herself singled out the role that Hillary Clinton has played in the continuation of the repression today. So, yes, we definitely hold Clinton and certainly the U.S. government responsible for Berta's death. And we have to remember that it's not just environmentalists who have been killed in increasing numbers since that coup. There are labour leaders, there are human rights activists. Many people have died. Yes, uh, two journalists, one was killed and one was attacked in the last month. There have been women leaders who have been killed. There have been LGBTQ activists who were killed. Just this morning, I found an email listing the numbers of those killed, displaced, arrested, and physically attacked just since February 16th. The number is unbelievable. And Berta herself, I did a count, in the three months prior to her death, Berta received 13 either death threats or attempts at violence upon her. 13 in three months. And this follows hundreds of death threats that she's gotten over the last few years. Did you talk to her about that and ask her how she copes with a, a life of, well, you can't say fear because she was, she was fearless, wasn't she? She was absolutely fearless. Oh, yes, we talked about it. I have flown down to provide accompaniment to her Many, many people have provided accompaniment to her, but, you know, she didn't worry about it. I'm sure she knew she wouldn't live to be an old woman. I knew it. We all knew it. I actually started writing her eulogy about four years ago because her life was too on the line. She spoke too much truth, too much power, but it never daunted her for one minute because she knew that her life was consecrated and that the work that she was doing was worth it. And, of course, the day that she did die, she wasn't the only one who was shot. No, she wasn't, and thank you for raising that. Gustavo Castro Soto is the head of the group Otros Mundos, that is Other Worlds, in Mexico. He is also a co-founder and on the board of my own organization, which is called Other Worlds in English. He is also fearless warrior, and really the counterpart of Berta in Mexico. Gustavo has started and run many international networks to fight against illegal dams and rivers to protect the earth, to stand up for democracy against the tyranny of capitalism and the U.S. government and the oligarchy. And yes, Gustavo was sleeping at Berta's house the last night of her life because they were together. He had come in from Chiapas, Mexico, to do an environmental training, and he was wounded, and he did see the killers, but that poor man has gone from being a victim to being a political prisoner. He is now under the protection of the Mexican government in the embassy, but he cannot leave because he would probably be killed right away as long as he's on Honduran soil. Prior to that time, he was for several days a prisoner of the Hondurans. He has been forbidden from leaving the country, at least through April 6th. And we have inside 
information that they are planning on pinning the murder of Berta on Gustavo himself. What's the reaction of the Mexican government to what's happened to Gustavo, apart from giving him sanctuary? Well, the Mexican government doesn't care for Gustavo very much either, because he has been a thorn in their side, demanding that they respect the law. So the Mexican ambassador in Honduras has just been wonderful. Gustavo has written about how much she has supported him, and either she or the consul been with him every step of the way. But I do not know of any statement that the Mexican government has made, and they probably would be happy to have him out of their hair, too. Certainly the Mexican government is responsible for its own assassinations and human rights violations of their citizens who are fierce activists. How has it impacted on you? You said that you've been expecting this for years, but it doesn't matter. Once it happens, it's a, it's a whole new world, isn't it? It is a whole new world. For me personally, Berta was one of my closest, closest sisters. We worked so closely together for, I think, 18 years. And Berta is like no one else in the world. She is so generous, and she cannot be replaced. However... She was part of the struggle, and that struggle goes on behind her and will continue on long after her. So there are many of us around the world who have dropped everything to stand up and try and get immediate security for Gustavo and a quick return to his homeland since he is being held quite illegally. There is no charge brought against him, and there's no legal reason for his being forced to remain in Honduras. We are trying to get a impartial investigation led by the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights into Berta's murder, because for the Honduran government to investigate it is like the fox guarding the chicken coop, because the Honduran government's hands are thick with Berta's blood. And we are also trying to get the dam, the Awazaka dam that I spoke about, cancelled now, finally, and also to ensure that no members of Kopin are criminalized, as they already have been. Already another leader of Kopin was killed on March 15th, and several others have been arrested or interrogated in ridiculous accusations of having killed their beloved leader. And this is a little move on the part of the pathetic Honduran government to use the assassination of one leader to try and take out others by keeping them behind bars forever. So the demands that I'm mentioning right now come from Copin and Otros Mundos, Gustavo's organization themselves, and we hope that your listeners, Jen, will take up the call and will try and bring pressure from your government to bear on the Honduran government. What's your fondest memory of Berta? My fondest memory of Berta. Oh, there are so many. Gosh, we have traveled to so many places together. She actually lived with me for three months in New Mexico. We have complained about our various men. We have laughed over the ridiculousness of the tyranny. We have stood proudly watching the resistance of other movements around the world. I don't have one memory. I just have so many recollections of us 
being doubled over in giggles because Berta had an extraordinary sense of humor and could make a joke out of anything. And I'll tell you just one. This is actually funny, but if, if you knew Berta, you would laugh. It was that a radical Jesuit priest came to visit the site of the dam a few years ago, and then just after Berta's death, he recirculated a picture that someone had taken of the two of them at the site of the dam. And when Berta peered at the picture that had just been snapped, she laughed and said to the priest, I wonder which of the two of us will go first. That was Berta. She could make you crack up in any situation. This was just the most extraordinary woman with a heart, a mind, a spirit that together could change the world and have. Thank you for talking about her today, Beverly. Thank you, Jan, so much. And that was Beverly Bell, co-founder of Other Worlds, talking about her friend, Berta Kakeris, who was murdered in Honduras earlier this month. That's all for me for today. I'll be back next week at four o'clock. Bye for now.